Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all of the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. While I've got your attention, I'm really excited to announce that Covered Press is now offering its journalist story management software for free for the first 500 journalists who sign up. As a journalist, I know how difficult it can be keeping track of all my stories, invoices, and communications with editors. Covered Press streamlines the whole journalism process and keeps you organized. Sign up at CoveredPress.com today to get one of the 500 free spots available. And now, enjoy our podcast. And I was just kind of basically was like, to gave them my plan. And I was like, just like, tell me that I'm wrong. Like, tell me that this is a bad idea. They're all like, no, I think that's a good idea. I was like, all right, well, they think so. Then hopefully this will work out. Traditionally, journalists have relied on reporting and publishing the truth as the means to explaining the stories they're covering. But lately, some have started incorporating fact-based science fiction to help readers imagine the long-term impact of the complex stories that are being reported on. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Sam Greenspan is the creator of Bellwether, a new limited podcast series telling real reported stories inside a science fiction framework. Sam, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, excellent. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited. Listen to the podcast, the first episode at least, and I uh, can't wait to hear the the rest of it. It's really kind of intriguing. So first of all, I know you've worked for on other podcasts like 99% Invisible. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the audio storytelling gig? Sure. So I was just like a weird kid who grew up in in suburban, exurban South Florida, and just by virtue of being in a car a lot growing up pretty close to my grandparents, like there was NPR was just sort of always around. And I didn't really ever think too much of it until I think the first time I heard This American Life was probably when I was like 15 or six, probably about 15. And yeah, I just, I was just really, really captivated with it. And yeah, I just fell in love with the idea with just how transportive audio storytelling could be. And I really think of like my first, like, I don't know, real deep study of radio was I had this really terrible office job the first, like the summer before I went to college. This was in in 2004. And I had just gotten my first laptop, my first Apple laptop that came with a iPod. And I think I found on the internet, like a torrent of like every This American Life episode that had aired at that point. And I just like sat in this, like, I think I was like filing all day and I would just file all day and listen to like seven or eight episodes of this American life for an entire summer. And I think by the end, I like, I think I made it to the entire show at that point. So, and then I went to the salt Institute in Portland, Maine in 2006 and learned from Rob Rosenthal and Patty white about how to make documentary radio stories. Yeah. And then just sort of kind of a slow process of like hustling to figure out how to find work in this world because it was really and remains really, I think, still pretty opaque to to people who are just starting out. My first job actually out of college was teaching high schoolers in D.C. radio production at the Latin American Youth Center, this place called the Art and Media House in Columbia Heights. And yeah, it was a super cool summer job. Got to just like work with kids and hang out. And, and we made like weird documentary audio experiments all day. Then I stuck around DC, did some freelancing for, I guess, your home station, WAMU in DC and uh, WYPR in Baltimore. And then, and then I wound up living in Baltimore for a little bit, 
wound up getting a job at the NPR mothership in the operations department and did a bunch of bunch of different things at NPR, gigging around All Things Considered, the weekend shows, and then eventually was tapped to launch the TED Radio Hour, which is still going strong. Yeah, and I think it was probably around 2000. I mean, I think it was like 2009, 2010, which was when the real podcast boom started happening. And it really felt at that time, by podcast boom, I mean, there were like five shows, right? Like there were the shows that like, like you can get This American Life as a podcast. You can get Studio 360. At that time, Weekend America was still on the air, which was a big a big show that had a lot of like really interesting documentary work. I think Hearing Voices still had a feed. I don't even know if Hearing Voices still does have a feed. They may. And basically, like if you were a person who listened to podcasts, like there were about eight shows <laughs> and you could listen to all of them over the course of the week. Well, the, to, to be fair, those were eight NPR shows. There were a lot of other podcasts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I guess in sort of my orbit, right? This sort of this sort of like journalism, public radio oriented stuff. But I guess my point is that around around like 2009, 2010 is when there started being podcasts that were sort of in that NPR public radio orbit from people who were sort of had come up in that environment, but were working independently. People like Nate DeMeo at the Memory Palace and of course, Roman Mars, making 99% Invisible. That was sort of through a partnership with KALW, but in the NPR station in San Francisco. But yeah, they've been pretty much as like independently. And those, there were probably, there was also a really cool show called, oh God, what was it called? It was this really awesome show about video games. Uh, a Life Well Wasted. That was an amazing show. And yeah, it just felt really crate diggy, right? Like it felt like you would go to your local like record shop and just sort of dig through the stacks and like not sure what it was going to find. That's kind of like what it felt like when you're sort of looking through, I don't know, places that aggregated RSS feeds or the iTunes store or whatever. There was like a really weird experimental podcast called Basement Tapes of the Mole Cabal. You know, Love and Radio was was a much like sort of rougher. There was also this brief thing called like Alt NPR, which I don't even really understand like what that was at the time, but Love and Radio was part of that. So anyway, like, yeah, there was a sort of moment happening where all these people were interested in, in making and like taking what everyone had learned from public radio and kind of like sitting in dialogue with the things that we really liked about it and also the things we didn't really like about it and making stuff that could be new and innovative. And so I just got really hooked on Memory Palace and 99% Invisible. And unlike, you know, This American Life, it didn't take very long to go through the whole back archive, right? Because like, I think when I started listening to, to Nate DeMeo's show, I mean, I think they, he maybe had like 40 episodes, but I think I was still able to like blaze through them in about like, I don't know, a couple of weeks because they're only like, you know, five to eight minutes long. And I just, I just loved it. And I, I got in touch with Roman and I just sort of tried, I somehow convinced him to let me be his intern from Baltimore. And then when he was starting his Kickstarter campaign, I, I basically lobbied for him to just try to raise a little bit more than he was going to raise anyways, and just hire me. And I would come work for him for like one or two days a week in Oakland. And the Kickstarter was going on like while I was driving across the country. And by the time I landed in Oakland, where I moved, you know, sight unseen from the East Coast, he had raised enough money to basically give me a full-time job. Then I was like a, I guess, a full-time podcast. Which must have been both exciting and scary at the same time. You know, I think if I was smarter, it would have been scary, but I just, I just kind of like knew it would work out. I, at the time I had just launched the TED Radio Hour. And even though I had only ever had like part-time or gig jobs at NPR, it seemed like I could probably stick around and get a staff job 
full-time making Ted Radio Hour. And like, I got to work with Eric Newsom on that. And that was like a fun experience. But I just had the sense that something, there were other interesting things happening across the country. And yeah, I think I have like maybe the weird, a very weird bragging right of being able to say that I may be the first person to ever quit a staff public radio job to work at a podcast. Because like when I, when I told people at NPR that I was like leaving to go work on a podcast, mostly they looked concerned. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know you have such a good future here if you if you just stick through. Kind of, yeah, yeah. The podcasting thing is, is I, I just don't know. Yeah, people, people love their radios. Yeah, it's it, it was. I I think <laughs> if I had been smarter, I would have seen how how much bigger of a risk it was. But also, like I was at that point, I had kind of been able to meet a lot of the people that I really looked up to, like the Kitchen Sisters, Davy Nelson and Nikki Silva and Joe Richmond at Radio Diaries. And I forget who else at that point I was talking Robert Smith at NPR has been a long, long time mentor of mine. And I was just kind of basically to give them my plan. And I was like, just like, tell me that I'm wrong. Like, tell me that this is a bad idea. They're all like, no, I think that's a good idea. I was like, all right, well, they think so. Then hopefully this will work out. You seem to be at NPR to, at a pretty interesting time because I would imagine there still were a lot of people who, who maybe didn't view podcasting the same way you did. Oh God, yeah, totally. And, and couldn't imagine that it would, you know, replace or you know that would be the the platform by which a lot of the the content they were creating was going to be spread. I mean, this is, I'm not saying anything like super surprising. I mean, I, I worked at a, a commercial radio station and they, they had no real understanding of podcast as well, but you know, you were young and you were a believer because for me, I, you know, what I see is sort of the disconnect is not understanding that you're not necessarily advocating for the platform, although the platform is really kind of what it is. You're really advocating for audio storytelling. And this seemed to be a much better fit for you and something that you were able to take in, in innately or recognized that this was something, you know, that you would, you know, tie your career to. I think what I was attracted to was the sort of liminal space for creativity to happen. I don't think podcasting in and of it's is like, I don't think there's anything particularly innate about it that makes it like better or more interesting. It's just sort of how it was situated and how it came across. And also like, to be honest, like, I don't love the word podcast. I think a lot of people in in radio dislike the word. And I still, I still say radio. Like I still say that I'm a radio producer. I'm a podcaster. I can tell you that. What's that? You like the word podcast? I'm a, no, I'm a podcaster. I can't say that I'm not. I've written a book about it. Sure. I guess I'm just saying like, I think, I think it's a term that is given like more gravitas than it really like needs. And I I guess what I mean is like, like, I I could ask you like, Hey, did you listen to the audio visual streamable content broadcast to your TV this week, Game of Thrones? Like, no, you just call it a TV show, right? Yeah, but the TV is the object as well. It's a thing as well as the media. Right, like a radio. That's why I say it. Yeah, so that's why I exactly. say radio. So it's a pod. <laughs> the, ca- the cast is how you throw it into the pod, I guess. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's. I mean, this, th- this, is, this is sounds a, like a very. <laughs> this is the hill very, I will die on. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, well, it's just like, I, I right. made my peace with it. I think it's just like, <laughs> I think what's interesting about calling it radio is that I see like what we're doing as being connected to, you know, a hundred plus year history of oh, storytelling yeah. and news and journalism and art, you know, stretching back to, I mean, the radio is the oldest time-based medium that exists in the home. Right. But one of the things, the advantages of, of you know, the, the digital media showed us, especially in, you know, podcasting or, or even like DVRs, is that, that the content we create isn't necessarily 
like nailed to a particular time. Totally. Yeah. And so performance is whenever you decide that, that when the consumer decides. So the, that's really the key, the thing that's flipped. Right. We're all still producing content. We all have deadlines we set for ourselves. We're going to record something. It's going to be finished. And we're going to post it. I mean, those are all the things we put out there. But as far as consumption goes, it's totally up in the air. Sure. And yeah, it just creates more space. Because like, I mean, you know, a public radio station or any radio station really can only have 24 hours of broadcasting a day unless they have a side stream, right? And there's just more space for, for things to exist. And so I think that that's the possibility that, you know, that a lot of us found and our people are still finding in, in, in radio. It doesn't have to conform to the standards that we were told they had to. The freedom of the things that you can talk about and share. Sure. Uh, because of the you, you don't necessarily you don't have the the restrictions of the F FCC. Totally, yeah. So I mean, there's that going for you, which is good. <laughs> um, before, so let's talk a little bit about bellwether before we get too much into it. I want to talk about the the journalism aspect aspect of it because this is a journalism podcast. You know, because you know I got to sell to my audience. I don't have to sell my audience. My audience is smart. Why do I have you on? Why do I have somebody on who's a doing a is clearly a a fiction. But the way this is presented is this is something that is, it's a true story, but, well, maybe not a true story. It's a reported story. They're um, true stories. Yeah. They're true stories, but they're presented in a, within a science fiction framework. So let's talk a little bit about the, the journalism side of it. When you say you're, that this is reported stuff, what is it you're doing and, and how are the stories true? Sure. I mean, there's like an episode zero of the show, which I call like a skeleton key for understanding how the show works read me like it's like the read me document of a piece of software or something like that right and like that kind of analog becomes more clear as to why it's phrased like that as you learn about the fiction world of the show but anything that you hear me sam greenspan say on my show is journalism right i use the same tactics the same rigor the same approaches as i would approach any kind of journalism story right whether it was for 99 visible or npr or anyone, I think the reporting process is kind of the same. What's different about it is that that story sort of lives inside of this bigger universe that is informed by the reporting that I'm doing. So like, and, and a lot of, and a lot of journalists really do this, frankly, and I've done this in the past too, is say like, okay, well, like, here's what's happening. And in the future, we might imagine this happening, but for now, here's where we are, you know, Sam Greenspan and PR news or whatever. Right. So I was just trying to take that like for now and just have more fun with it and say like the things that are happening in the story, if I'm doing a good job, will sort of manifest in the future in the fiction world in ways that are maybe a bit more subtle and a little bit like seem maybe disconnected. But I think in terms of the whole show, there are themes that that appear throughout that I think they kind of talk to each other. It's interesting because, you know, this discussion and just sort of the pitch that came to me about this podcast got me thinking about about some other types of things. When I was growing up, and it was even bigger before I grew up. I'm an old I'm an old man, but before before I grew up, CBS TV their news division did a show called You Are There, yeah, mm -hmm. which was they you know they went back to the fall of Troy mm -hmm. and Walter Cronkite goes <laughs> up and interviews. Achilles. Right, so right. what are you going to be doing uh, this morning? Why is it so important that Hector come out here and fight you? Yeah, yeah. And it was like, okay, we're going to be telling this. The newsman was a was a mechanism whereby to tell the story, but it also grounded it, grounded the audience, who they were and, and their relationship to the story being told. But also I was thinking of 
Nomadland, the movie by Chloe Zhao. And she, there was another movie she did about horses. It might have been called Horses. She did a few years later where she gets, you know, people who lived these lives or she's drawing on real stories and then presents them in a fictional framework that in many ways seems even more real than a fiction because they have the depth of whatever the story behind it is or the people behind it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think Nomadland was really like the first half of it felt like a documentary and then the second half felt like a, like a narrative film. Yeah, it's such, such an interesting, innovative technique. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it's okay. Even in podcasting, I mean, people people have done this too. I mean, I, I use the phrase speculative journalism. There was a really great show out of KPCC called the big one, which is like forecasting like an earthquake that will like really damage Los Angeles at some point in the future, which was itself based on the Pulitzer Prize winning New Yorker article by Catherine Schultz called the really big one, which is about the coming earthquake in Seattle that's going to completely destroy the entire Pacific Northwest that we know is coming. And I think that, you know, those two in particular have shown like you can report the future. And so I was, I was inspired by that. And at first, when I started doing Bellwether, when I started figuring out what it would mean to make a show of speculative journalism, the Catherine Schultz article had come out, but the KPCC show had not at that point. I thought the point was to sort of like forecast, right? Like there's a lot of like futurists and forecasters. And, and that was something that I kind of got interested in and I'm influenced by. I think what I wound up realizing or being more moved by is the idea that that like the news is is like it's it's hard like it's hard to like it's hard to listen it's not like hard to make i mean not that it's hard to make but like it's hard to listen to like it's like it's especially with like so many of the horrors of 2016 and onward and just like i personally was like just totally wrapped up in the news of the Afghanistan exit, like it's exhausting. And I remember there were periods, especially at the beginning of the Trump years, where I was just getting a Pavlovian response to my phone buzzing, where it would have any kind of news update. I was like thrown across the room because I just like couldn't deal with another crisis. And I think that there's just an emotional toll that it takes. And I found myself really retreating into like science fiction, which I read as a kid and really loved. And I, I was going to it as basically escapism. And what I found very quickly, <laughs> which I had forgotten, is that sci-fi has always been about cultural commentary and has always been about the present, however the authors were, were finding it. So I began to think about maybe speculative journalism. I mean, yeah, it's about forecasting and it's about like trends and stuff like that, but it's also about giving us the sort of emotional space and the emotional bandwidth and the feeling of like safety and to deploy your imagination to go and look at like really hard stories that we might not otherwise be able to look at fully because they're just too scary. Is the exercise then one of detachment? You examine the, the problem or the issue at a distance by placing it in a different context? Maybe, or maybe it's like, I don't know. I never thought about it quite this way, but it could be the sort of like, you know, Zen or, or Buddhist idea of like non-attachment, right? Yeah, that you have no, no skin in the game technically. Well, it's it's, it's sort of about being ha having the kind of like intellectual and emotional fortitude to sort of like look at it, like to take your own ego out of the equation, to sort of look at it more objectively, perhaps. So that's kind of the thinking that goes into it. There's also this like idea, I'm for blanking on the right, the artist who, who this comes from, but I can get that to you in a minute. Oh, I think his name is Matt Goulish, uh, artist in Chicago. He wrote something about how like good art can be 
like, you know, the mirrored shield upon which to gaze the Medusa, right? Looking at the Medusa is so horrifying that you are like petrified, literally turned to stone, but having some kind of like reflection or alternate angle to it, like allows you to like approach this horror. So that's kind of like what I hope to do with my show. And I know that if you look at something like the Twilight Zone, where they put, you know, obviously it wasn't reported, but they were taking like maybe real concerns about, you know, nuclear you know, armament or sure. yeah, know, the other day, the, issues, the, racism. The, more, the day after, what was it called? The, yeah. the day after was it was the movie? Yeah, but the idea is you're taking these these stories and, and you're putting them in a different context so that people can view them and think about them differently. The thing with The Twilight Zone and, and even like more recently Black Mirror, where a lot of it is you're taking the contemporary fears and you're you're serving it up in a different way. Which is hence why we have all the zombie movies and books. <laughs> right. Sickness, right? The sickening is happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I loved, I grew up in the Twilight Zone. I loved those marathons. I watched them. I watched it constantly. Do you have a favorite episode? You know, I really, there's actually a couple that come to mind, actually. So the thing that I love the most about, about the Twilight Zone and like, and Rod Serling as a creator and a writer is that like, they were really of this moment where it's like, it's good to be an individual and like, it's good to be a unique person. And that like the most beautiful thing in the universe is like one person expressing themselves. And the most scary and dangerous thing in the universe is an unruly, stupid mob. Right. And I think that there's a, there's an episode, I believe it's called the monsters are due on Maple street. That's, that's one of my favorites. It's so good. It's so good. And And it's just dark. Yeah. Well, it's basically, it's, it's just that like, there's, there's this like small town and some kids think they saw a flying saucer and then someone's like, and like, then all the power in the town goes off, but like one person, their lights turn on and then they're like, Oh my God, like those are the aliens. we got to go kill them. And, and the town dissolves into total chaos. And it just looks like they're just having a witch hunt. And then like up on the, <laughs> on the hillside in the final pan out, you do see the Martians and they're like, wow, it's really easy to take over to, you know, to subjugate humans. All you got to do is just like knock out their power and turn their lights on a little bit and they all kill each other. So it's, <laughs> You exploit their fear. Right. And the other thing I was thinking about this as you were talking is taking speculative, you know, journalism. Is, is it a way to, because if you're, if you're doing a news story, you can really only report what happens and, you know, the ending might not be the ending that you would choose, but is this a way for you to basically mold the narrative and then present it maybe with an ending that provides whatever it is you want to provide. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in a way it's, it's essayistic like that, right? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, the the fiction didn't just like birth itself into the world. Right. I mean, like it was written by mostly by me. And then I had a lot of input from my co-writer, Alex Barron, who came in about last year, actually, we've been working for about a year on this. And so he was the one who really sort of helped me crystallize some ideas and finish the thing. So, yeah, I mean, so like in episode two, it's about the ghost ship fire in Oakland where I used to live in which like it was this horrible warehouse fire in which 36 people died as a response to this really horrible fire. The thing that city governments were doing, not just in Oakland and California, but really across America and even into Canada was like shutting down these art spaces, these unpermitted art spaces where people were actually like reeling from loss. Cause a lot of people like knew those folks who died and that fire was being used as a wedge to basically kick people out of their homes and then flip them to developers. And this was sort of egged on by like alt-right trolls. 
who are encouraging each other to go play vigilante and go into these DIY spaces that were, you know, that had their addresses public on, on Facebook events or whatever, and just like go and like, you know, see what they look like and then report them to the fire marshal. And the cities were complicit in this. And, and my, my point in that was like, the thing that was just so hard to say that I finally, it's, that one took me a long time to write. And I eventually kind of just say in the piece, like if literal Nazis are happy with city policy, there's something probably wrong with the city policy, right? But there was this sort of like willful turning of a blind eye to all of these, you know, actual hateful people, like literal white supremacists who wanted to hurt these communities of BIPOC and queer artists and stuff like that. And the city was complicit in it. And because it, you know, that's like, oh, well, actually, this is what our policy says. And, you know, it says you can't have like living in unpermitted workspaces. Anyways, the point is, is that when we go to the fiction, we hear a character in Cass and Icarus's world who is sort of like a YouTuber of their time called Grant Ulysses. And he's a sort of, he's like a white supremacist, but the way that white supremacy manifests itself in their time is to be what we call autonomophobic, right? Which is to be like anti-AI, anti-robot. And so he's, he's kind of like issuing a bunch of schlock about why, you know, in the show, robot is a slur. <laughs> so like why robots, because it actually comes from the Czech word for forced labor. So so it's their word. They can only use it. Well, I mean, you know, I, it's weird because I've sort of trained myself to stop saying, stop saying robot, but like, you know, that and kind of and hateful stuff. And then it just sort of uses a vehicle to promote other kinds of like hateful platforms. And also just the sort of like, he talks about like, wouldn't it be a funny joke if like, you know, all of these people who have these AIs got like punched in the face basically, because there's this sort of, and that's kind of like a, a bigger observation that like we in this country have a really hard time, like just doing any critical thinking about like when someone, something's couched as a joke. And if someone's like, oh, well, I'm just joking, you know, that, that the frogs are making us gay, right. Or whatever it was that, what was it that got InfoWars guy in trouble? whatever he said eventually that that actually did get him get him sued two things i wanted to ask before we we wrap up one is you know you you launched four episodes beginning on september 27th well first of all tell me tell me about the financing around it this is kind of different this is something <laughs> i hadn't heard before it's largely self-financed over the four years that I spent making this, I had a little bit of support from the Institute for the Future, from the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University, from the Kickstarter campaign. But yeah, I mean, part of why it took so long to make was because I had went down several roads of making it with trying to like land deals with distributors. And for different reasons, some including COVID, they wound up all falling apart. And I was just like... Whatever, I'll just do it myself because at this point, Let's get this, this point, off my desk. Yeah, I guess off my desk, and the stories were only getting more and more stale, right? Like I had to keep updating the ghost ship story and the alt right stuff because they kept like I had to explain like at the beginning I started reporting this, I had to explain what like, what Pepe the Frog was and what Pole was and what 4chan was, and it unfortunately all became very zeitgeisty, and I didn't actually have to explain what that was by the time I released it. So, so you release it, and, you know, what do you see as the future uh, for the podcast? Is mm -hmm. is this it? Or are you? You're planning something else with it. Yeah. So I released it's weekly on a podcast feed and it's also available. I put it up like an album on Bandcamp where you can you can buy it all at once and you can also get there's like I have some some limited edition merch available on the Bandcamp page. But yeah, I mean mostly it's as of right now, it's a limited run series. The fiction of the show does tell a complete story, though there are some cliffhangers. And yeah, I mean I hope my hope is that someone out there with a checkbook that can green light podcasts will hear it and, and want to move it forward or I'll move on. You know, I've learned a lot from making it and I'm really 
privileged and that I got to have this time to make it. And I'm proud of the work that we did, not just me, but as I said, Alex Barron and, and all the actors, Carmen Berkeley just does a totally heroic performance of like leading the fiction world and all the other people, the, the credits, like, I mean, we, we thank a lot of people because it, it was really took a lot of people over the course of four years. And I mean, personally, like I'm exhausted and like, I need a job, <laughs> so I won't be financing another four episodes, but if someone out there wants to, you know, Sam at bellwether.show. What we have, the four episodes, uh, as I said, I've listened, I guess I listened to the read me and then I also listened to the, the first episode mm-hmm. and, and planned to, to listen to the, to the rest. Give it a try. It's a really interesting story. It's really well told. Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.